Hello and welcome back to episode 35 of Double Reel, the podcast magazine for the discerning film nerd. My name's James Adamson and I'm here to regale you with nerdy chat about films and the world of cinema generally. I'm joined as always by my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much. Good to be back. Last week we brought you the first part, Double Reel Monthly, with news, reviews of new releases and chat about how we're fitting in film watching with our busy, exciting lives. If you haven't heard it yet, please do go back and download it, where you'll find reviews of new films Cocaine Bear, Creed 3 and Luther Fallen Sun, my look at David Cronenberg's The Brood, and James's look at the Nick Cage classic, inverted commas, Ghost Rider 2. Just to mention again, if you're enjoying the pod, we'd be very grateful if you take a couple of minutes to leave a five-star review about us wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for our regular features, starting with Classics and Recommended, where we dip into our list of great films we haven't got round to seeing yet. For this episode, it's the George Clooney legal thriller, Michael Clayton. Our hidden gem looks at lesser-known or underappreciated films that deserve a wider audience, which this month features Martin Scorsese's 80s dark comedy, After Hours. Then it's the one that got away, where we look at tall tales of projects that filmmakers tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 35, we look at the story of Steven Spielberg's Night Skies. We close our features episode with the remake Hate Watch. This month we discuss the new version of Roald Dahl's The Witches. Next week it's The Big Conversation, where we discuss the topic from the film world in more detail. We'll tell you more about that bit later. First we've got some messages from listeners about this month's features. Uh, on our classic Michael Clayton, Deborah says Clooney, Tom Wilkinson and Tilda are great in this film, loved it. Graham, Shannon and Kat agree. On a one that got away, Brada says, wow, I would have loved this. But Joy says, I think the first half of Close Encounters has enough scary alien scenes already. And I prefer the way that and E.T. turned out with a more hopeful and wholesome viewpoint. On our Hidden Gem After Hours, Nicholas says, I love this film. It's actually one of my favourite Scorsese flicks. On our remake, Hate Watch, uh, The Witches, Brian says, didn't care for the remake. The original version hasn't dated and we didn't need a new version. Mike, a different one, says, what I've been reading about Roald Dahl uh, and this story in particular has totally ruined my enjoyment of it. And Charlie says, I'm not sure we needed the first film, let alone the remake. Uh, Thanks for the messages. Now on with the pod. Now for the classics and recommended feature, where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before, and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films. I mean, we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films, from Das Boot to The Blues Brothers. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature, as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet, and from the steady stream of audience recommendations. You can go to letterbox.com slash double reel and click watch list for all the films on our list and you can make recommendations there or in all the usual places on our socials of films you think we should see. This month we look at an Oscar winning legal drama that marked George Clooney's transition from a light leading man to starring in more serious films. The classic feature for episode 35 is Michael Clayton. So James, this is one I haven't seen before and it's something that I decided needed to uh, needed to get watched. Um, had you seen it before um, the podcast? No, I remember I was just sort of getting into films at the time. And uh, I remember, you know, kind of getting a lot of hype about it at the time. And it was in the news and that and all that kind of thing. But I've never seen it, no. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the sort of film that, you know, you were, you, I think you were mature enough age, kind of, you know, 12, 11, 12, to watch a film like this. But I think it would have had sort of themes and content in it, which just wouldn't have kind of chimed with you the way it might do, you know, 15 years later. 
Um, so, Michael Clayton. This is uh, directed by uh, Tony Gilroy, uh, the brother of Dan Gilroy, who's been who's been involved in the, the Bourne trilogy in, in, in different degrees, mostly writing. This, I think, was his directorial debut, and it is a it's a legal thriller, but it's not a courtroom drama, right? We don't we don't actually see the inside of a courtroom. It is um, it's sort of these are corporate lawyers dealing with some really tricky case, and uh, George Clooney is kind of a fixer for them. And at the start. You get this kind of opening scene, which is very atmospheric. You don't really know; it doesn't tell you very much of what's going on, but it tells. It, it sort of sets out the players. It sets out what people are are working on, and you've got these kind of scenes where uh, George Clooney's character goes off to deal with something else, but seems very troubled by something. Tilda Swinton, by uh, by contrast, is kind of sweating and looks like she's about to have a breakdown over something, and then uh, and then a car bomb goes off. Uh, and wow, Jesus Christ, this is really kind of, this is like the first kind of three or four minutes of the film. And then it says four days previously and, uh, and you get everything else about the story is told in flashback. Um, what were your thoughts about that opening? Yeah, that really comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? I mean, that is the idea of a bomb, but when I kind of read the synopsis of it, I thought it was like a film about, about you know, kind of like lawyers and kind of like a courtroom. Yeah. yeah. And like, obviously it has that in it as well, but it was the, just the, from the offset, bang, you're like, whoa, you know what I mean? Yeah. There's some shit going down here, isn't there? Yeah. It, it, it kicks off. It's kind of, it's kind of a legal thriller in the same way that those John Gisham things are legal thrillers, that it's really the legal yeah. setting is, I mean, it's, I think the tone is very different from a John Gisham and the pace is very different from a John Gisham, but it's the same thing that says the legal scenario is the setting for some, you know, serious, dangerous stuff to be happening, basically. Um, so stylistically, I thought it, what was interesting about this film is that it's quite it's quite downbeat in a way. Everything takes place either at night or like dawn or dusk in the twilight, and it's sort of like it gives you the impression that these people are sort of operating operating in the shadows, you know, where, where no one can see them, kind of thing. Which I think is deliberate. What what did you think of the sort of the overall kind of style of the film in that way? Um, I found it quite slick. I don't know yeah. about you, not like I just found it very sharp. You know, what yeah. I mean, it was very airtight for mm-hmm. me. I feel like it wasn't. Didn't feel like it was too much waffling. It kind of grips you from the start. Yeah, I which think, I really liked. I like films like that. Yeah, and I think I think they do quite a nice job of. They kind of. It's it. The films. I, I mean this in a good way. The film's sort of trying to trick you, isn't it? Because it's it's sort of. On the one hand, it, it seems like it's like a bit going at a very deliberate pace. So you explore the character and everything they're going on. To, do you know what I mean? It kind of. It feels scene for scene like. The the, the 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 story is unfolding and taking its time, but actually, like you say, it is actually dra- it is actually kind of pushing you along. It's quite it's quite a sort of trick that it, it, that it's pulled there. It it doesn't it it doesn't want you to think that you're being kind of hurried along, but it is kind of it, it doesn't want you to kind of lose the thread of the story. So it pushes you along all, along all the time. Um, and George Clooney, this is, I mean, he'd done Siriana before this, which is kind of a supporting role, and he'd won a, he'd won an Oscar, an acting Oscar for that, and he he'd sort of done sort of some serious drama before that. But this was kind of the first time I think where he played kind of a different character as kind of his matinee idol persona. He sort of really dials back on like the charm. He doesn't smile very often. He doesn't really sort of play a lovable rogue, and he plays quite a morally compromised sort of quite kind of gloomy character. And it feels like that his his character sets the sto- the, the tone of the or the mood of the film. What what did you think of Clooney in this? 
I thought he was a bit hard done by to not win an Oscar that year. Yeah. I thought he was excellent. I don't know about you, but I thought he was really, really good. Yeah, he is, he is, um, he is a very good actor. I wonder if perhaps, you know, he's sort of the, he's, he's the sort of person that they don't give leading actor Oscars to, similar to Brad Pitt, you know? But, and, yeah, and also, but, it, that, that was Daniel Day-Lewis's year with There Will Be Blood, isn't there? Which, it's sort of like Daniel Day-Lewis and Meryl Streep. If they're, if they're doing one of their flagship productions, everyone else has been nominated, can forget it, sort of thing, you know? Whether, whether that's the right or wrong decision, that's just sometimes how it plays out, you know? Yeah, it's annoying that. Um, but what I, I think what you always get with George Clooney is like a strong kind of assured performance you know it's very it's very smooth he's a very suave kind of character the same with brad pitt um so i suppose you aren't going to win it's like it's like man city winning a league every year you've just not got it's any not chance a, it's not appreciated yeah um yeah he's, he's going through an interesting period at this time from the turn the, the turn of the century you can see his uh his film career revolving and i think there's obviously a lot of people you know he's got female fans who sort of love the george clooney as, as a handsome doctor in er and in oceans 11 all that kind of thing but this is this film is much more like the films he's been making ever since and the kind of characters he's wanting to play ever since and the evolution of his of his film crew you know during this period from from the start of the millennium you've got the perfect storm oh brother where art thou oceans 11 and 12 i think oceans 13 comes in there sometime as well uh intolerable cruelty 2003 he starts directing and then 2005 he's in syriana which is a very sort of serious film and then after this film uh, Michael Clayton, you don't get another Ocean's Eleven or Out of Sight type film after this. This is like his watershed. Do you think he did the right thing to kind of leave that leave that side of George Clooney behind and do more of this? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, that, that's maybe an age thing. I mean, he was forty five when he did this, and I guess you can only play that kind of uh, that kind of character for so long, right? Yeah, this is true. Yeah, so we talked about Tony Gilroy. This is his directorial debut. What, what did you think of his directing? I mean, you said it's very slick. It, for me, it was the kind of directing that you don't notice, but there is actually quite a lot going on with this directing, if you see what I mean. What did you think of him as a director? Um, I think what was more slick about it was just the performances, yeah. but that obviously can come down to the director about what he gets out of them and picking the right cut and things like that. But... Yeah, I don't think it was a film that like was outstanding for its uh, directing, but I enjoyed just the kind of... I thought it was sharp more than anything. Yeah. Yeah, he does more writing than directing, but he did kind of throw himself at this one. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I liked it. Like you say, I think, I think it rests on the performances, which is, you know, where you come in with... Uh, uh, you know, you got Tilda Swinton playing the, the you know, and, and sort of a lawyer on the opposite side to George Clooney. You've got Tom Wilkinson on the lawyer who's had, as a lawyer who's had a nervous breakdown and George Clooney's got to sort him out. Um, so performances like, who, who comes, actually, who do you think comes out best out of those three? Because it, it, the film's built around them. Who do you think comes out best in terms of the acting? Probably Tilda Swinton, yeah. Uh, but I did really enjoy George Clooney as well. But yeah, probably Tilda Swinton just because she's she's a tremendous actress and yeah, probably yeah. deserves that recognition. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting role for her to win for. I mean, she's very good because because she, she's so good, right? She's, I mean, she's a brilliant actress. But don't you kind of think that she always um, or so often plays very so much more unusual characters than this? Do you know what I mean? 
she she does such a good job of this character, but it is it's, it's kind of a con- conventional character for her to play. Did I, 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 I don't know what you thought. I found it a little bit weird that this is what she wins for. Do you know what I mean? After all the kind of other kind of much more kind of, you know, weird stuff. It's like, it's like if, if we're going to make a football analogy, it's like it's it's like a player who's always kind of scoring overhead kicks into the corner and kind of doing things no one else can do, and then sort of getting all you know getting all the credit for playing you know for for, for what for her is a bit of a tap in performance. Am I am I being harsh? I I, I just I, I just expect her to be a little bit more kind of out there than, than this. Do you know what I mean? I think what she did was right for the character. But, I mean, am, am I making sense? Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. Um... What did you think of? It? I think she makes. Sorry, she makes quite unusual hmm. films, so she doesn't make the big kind of. I mean, she's been in Doctor Strange, obviously, in Avengers, but in terms of like the films that she wants to sort of be in and wants hmm. to make, they don't always get. Like, what was the one she did? Three thousand years of longing. Yeah, that's that's never gonna. Um, that's never gonna you know, get the the recognition that she maybe deserved. I think what was hard done by is that we need to talk about Kevin just got completely ignored by Yeah you know, the Oscars and stuff that yeah, because that if, was her best performance and she should have won for that if I'm yeah, being completely yeah, honest. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. It's just if you see her in things like Snowpiercer and Three Thousand Years of Longing and even in like Doctor Strange and stuff, she's always she's always got a very different look and a very different style. I hesitate to use the word quirky. But do, do you know what I mean? What in, in there are so many filmmakers and you know and actors who who do quirky, and I can only put up with it for so long. But Tilda Swinton just brings so much interesting energy to her films, and in this, she's kind of more conventional. Cat, still very very good. Um, what what did you think of the, like George Clooney's like central character? Can you sympathize? You know, with all of his circumstances, the film kind of plays out like a novel almost, and you've got all these you've got these backstories, and you're not sure which one of them is actually going to play a part. You've got his. You've got the fact that he's a he's an, he's, he's a gambler, and he's obviously his brother's got some problems, and then he's sort of paying for his brother's problems. He's got this aspects of his personal life, and you're, you're you go through the film not being sure which one of those plot lines is going to play out. But he's he's quite flawed. I mean, were you able to sympathise with George Clooney in the situation that he's in? Um, yeah, it's it's always hard to sympathise with a lawyer, isn't it? Yeah, especially um, because... a lawyer who's doing what he does, you know. Yeah. Um, but again, the situation that they find themselves in is just so... It's mental, isn't it? It's just a... It's not... I wouldn't call it a bonkers film, but the situation that they have to navigate is... Yeah. It's you bon- get what I'm it's bon- Yeah, it's bonkers, but I kind of completely believe it. Do you know what I mean? I completely believe that that shit would happen in a case of that nature. It's... Essentially, it is a a case in which huge teams of corporate lawyers have, have been spending years kind of tied up in various like discussions it's never seen yet seen the inside of a courtroom and people have been waiting for years for some kind of compensation on horrible health problems that have hit them because of the um uh i think it's a crop it's a fertilizer or something that's basically devastated a rural community and these lawyers are being paid huge amounts of money to just kill the case and George Clooney is the fixer who always kind of finds a way to kind of make problems go away. And Tom Wilkinson is an incredibly talented lawyer who has basically can no longer stomach the um, the, comp- the moral compromises he's making. And he's, he believes that he's essentially on the wrong side of this case. Uh, Tilda Swinton is, 
she's like the head of legal for the company, their external counsel, who are helping this com- this pharmaceutical company get away with killing people, basically. Tilda Swinton is head of legal for that pharmaceutical company. And they all start turning on each other, which is what, what the story revolves around. And it's kind of... It's got thriller beats, isn't it? I mean, you know, there there are the stakes in this film are deadly, uh, and people start acting in, in increasingly sort of dangerous ways. But I found it very believable. Did you? Yeah, no, it was. It didn't seem like out with out with the realms of possibility. You know, like my cousin Vinny's an absolutely mental kind of courtroom drama, and it would yeah, never yeah. ever see the light of day. You know what I mean? But it's just a fun kind of film. Whereas, yeah, this felt you know like oh shit, we're up against it here, aren't we? Well, it's a very interesting thing that you say because, I mean, the, the, the style of, of My Cousin Vinny kind of doesn't look like any courtroom that you'll ever actually see, but it is really interesting that there is something in My Cousin Vinny which people in law school actually use to teach a couple of legal precedents because they're actually very well expressed in that film, which is weird because I think this film is um, probably more believable. But, I mean, not I don't imagine every case results in, in murder, right? But this film just feels more believable, doesn't it? That shows what style and and mood and kind of direction do to make a film believable. Do you know what I mean? A very, it's a very, very believable story because of the way that it's been told, you know? Yeah. Um, I was interested by the awards attention this film got. It was nominated for like seven Oscars, I think, and it won for Tilda Swinton for Best Supporting Actress. Um, it, wa- it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Clooney for Best Actor, Tom Wilkinson Supporting Actor... Uh, best original screenplay and best score. So it really got some Oscar attention. Um, did this strike you as a typical Oscars film? A wee bit, yeah. A little bit of, yeah, this will this will get the attention of the Academy. But is that necessarily a bad thing? No, not, not necessarily. I, I mean, I, I, the reason I asked the question is that the subject matter is very serious and the tone of the film is very serious. But I kind of felt that it was like more of a thriller than a than an Oscars film. Do you know what I mean? I thought it played out like a thriller more than like an Oscar drama. And I don't have a problem with that. Okay. I, th- I think Oscars should just be for the best films, right? And I think I, th- I think the reason that it got the Oscars' attention that it got was that it, because it's, it's about something that's happening in today's world. It's about like a serious injustice that takes place in today's courtrooms and corporate power versus human life and all of that stuff and the morally compromised characters. But... The way it the way it plays out is like a thriller film, and normally thrillers don't get that kind of credibility at the Oscars, but this one did. I just thought it was interesting that the Academy recognised that, because I don't I don't think it had the typical Oscar film story beats. It didn't have any big speeches. No one, apart from Tom Wilkinson, no one has big emotional kind of outbursts in the film. Um, I just thought it was interesting. I thought it was interesting the Academy recognised it. I think it, I think it earned the attention. But I, I'm, I, I could I could name a few kind of thrillers that didn't get the same kind of attention. I just found it interesting. Um, what about the ending? What did you think of the way the film ended? I don't want to do spoilers, but f- I mean, for example, I, I reckon in a, in, a, in, a, in a more Oscar type drama that, that perhaps the ending would have played out differently. But this kind of played out, you know, with a big confrontation at the end. What, what did you think of the ending and how, how it played out? Um. 
Yeah, I didn't have any... Are you saying it because you had, like, a kind of issue with it? Because No, 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 I just thought it was really interesting. No, no. Like I say, for me, I just thought it was quite interesting that if you were going to do an Oscar drama, you would almost do a, maybe a, a, a more inconclusive ending to the story or it would play out differently or you'd have kind of some... Do, do, do you know the way these... You know, like if Oliver Stone had done this, it would be played out a different way. I just... I, I, I was just... I was just... I was interested in what you thought of the way the film ended just because it was like... It was almost like a classic kind of... Uh, police thriller type ending and I just thought it was inter- I was I was interested in what you thought of it simple as that yeah no I think the ending was fine I think it suited the rest of the film it didn't kind of you know the way that a, f- a film can have an ending that just falls flat or it's tried to be a twist but doesn't work I think the ending suited the film yeah yeah. You. yeah I mean I, I did I, I enjoyed it and I, I kind of enjoyed the way the story was resolved because sometimes you don't get that resolution in films and I Stories don't need to have a happy ending. They don't need to have the ending that I want them to have. But whatever they do, that needs to be dramatically satisfying, which I thought it was. I was just, you know, it's interesting what you thought of it because it was uh, throughout the film. There is that question, isn't there? Is it is George Clooney going to do the right thing? Are you know are the are the people who are kind of covering up for what's happening? Are they going to get away with it? Is he going to, you know, with all the problems that he's got, you know, he owes money because of mistakes he's made and mistakes that his brother's made. You kind of get the feeling that he's only doing what he's doing for the firm because he's, uh, uh, you know, uh, in a bit of a bind. And you just think right up to the end, you just think, I don't quite know which way he's going to go on this, you know? And I thought it was, I thought it was interesting where they created suspense around character, you know? Yeah, okay, I see where you're coming from. Just just enjoyed it, just um, wondering what you thought, yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, I, 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 could you have seen it ending a different way, in, in the way that you don't, because you don't know how George Clooney's going to react to the situation, you don't know what, whether he's, you know, what, how he's going to respond to the dilemma that he's in. It, it could have ended a couple of different ways, don't you think? Yeah, it could, um... But no, I I thought it kind of wrapped things up nicely. Mm, yeah, it, um, it, it, it earned the ending, didn't it? Yeah, I think it did. I don't think it. I don't have any issues with that. Yeah, very good. Um, all right. Well, look, I think we're both saying this is a you know film that we're glad we watched. So we'd recommend other people watching it, although we might be the only ones who've not gotten around to seeing it. Uh, James, because you know this, you know look, he's not. This isn't on the radar of a of a of a typical twelve year old, even one with a sort of relatively advanced kind of view of film that you. I had was only ten when this thing came out. Ten. 2007, yeah. It came maybe. out in 2007, so yeah. I was not even. I was nearly 11. Nearly 11, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's uh, that's how that one plays out. So. It's you know, and I just I don't know why I missed this. This 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 is right up my street. I don't know why you know I don't know why I didn't go and see this at the time. It's just the way it goes, really. Um, but I'm glad we did. And anyone else who hasn't seen it, we recommend that you do so without further delay. It's available on all the usual channels. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month's feature is a film that was only made because the director's long gestating passion project was held up and he wanted to make something quick and cheap while he was waiting. The hidden gem for episode 35 is Martin Scorsese's After Hours. So, James, you haven't seen this before, have you? No, no, I have not. And uh, you, uh, 
did you did you know anything about it? Did you sort of did you find much out about it before you watched it when I nominated it? I know I've, I know I've mentioned it a couple of times before, but what what was your what did you know about this film going in before you saw it? Not much. It's sort of like another one of those Scorsese films that isn't Raging Bull and isn't Taxi Driver and isn't Goodfellas. It was made sort of in between. Yeah. Yeah, the sort of like not like King of Comedy kind of thing. Like I had no idea King of Comedy was a thing until Joker came out, and it's basically the same film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, Do you know and, what I mean. Yeah, King of Comedy is really interesting because King of Comedy is kind of the flip side to Taxi Driver in a way, um, and is sort of of a piece with uh, with with this. I mean, the background to this film is really interesting because the King of Comedy marked the end of Scorsese's first period of working with Robert De Niro, and then he had a break and went and did other things. Um, King Comedy didn't do very well at the box office, even though it thoroughly deserved to. It's my favourite Scorsese film. But the, the background to this film, which was the next thing Scorsese did, was that the project Scorsese actually wanted to do was The Last Temptation of Christ, which we've both seen. And it's based on a novel, which was highly controversial. So the making of the film was going to be controversial. You know, he was getting death threats and hate mail. Even when the film was announced, the studio was really unsure. And it's not like a biblical epic is kind of the sort of thing that you get in the 80s. It's not 1956, right? It's not like Quo Vardis and kind of the robe and Ben-Hur are are all on the list. So doing another biblical epic seems like, hey, yeah, everyone's watching these. Let's make it. It was like, who the fuck's going to watch a smart Scorsese biblical epic? So he he was kind of in the wilderness and he really wanted to make this film. Last Temptation of Christ comes out in 1988 and uh, uh, King Comedy came out in 1982. And really the only reason this film exists is that Scorsese was looking at that and saying, I do not want there to be a gap that long between making films. You don't want to, you don't want to just disappear off the map, right, for years and years before making You know, James Cameron can decide to do that, but other, other directors don't want to just fucking disappear, right? So he said, I want to make a film. And he asked around, said, what scripts have you got? What what could we do, which would be relatively easy to do, which is kind of straightforward to shoot, wouldn't cost a lot of money. And so, well, look, there's a film set in New York at night, about a, a, a night out that goes horribly wrong. Uh, and it's, it's you know, set in present-day New York. And Scorsese's a New York film director, so let's do it. So he really, he really did it just to have something to do. W- with all that in mind, did, did this seem typical? Did this seem in keeping with his other films when you watched it? What did you think um, of the style and everything else? Yeah, I think the way it was shot and the, the sort of dialogue is definitely reminiscent of Scorsese. But for me, Scorsese's stories are actually quite varied. Mm. I know he's like, you know, a bit of a kind of god when it comes to the, the gangster film. Um, but he's also made things like Wolf of Wall Street, which I wouldn't consider a, a typical film of his. And I wouldn't yeah. consider Hugo a typical films of his. And even though Gangs of New York is about gangs, it's not good fella gangsters, if you know mm. what I mean. And so, I, yeah, and in, in a it could way, be anything when it comes to him. Yeah, and in a way, this is one of the films that was the gateway to that because I think up to up to King of Comedy, right? Um, there is like there's this perception of Scorsese. Robert De Niro is going to be the main lead actor most of the time. It's going to be certain types of film. It's going to be Taxi Driver, it's going to be New York, New York, it's going to be Raging Bull, it's going to be Mean Streets. And Scorsese's obviously trying to do something different because the, the film he's trying to make is Last Temptation of Christ. But while he's waiting for Last Temptation of Christ, he goes off and does some very different stuff. He does this and then he does The Colour of Money, which is a, a sequel to The Hustler and it's about pool sharks. And I think the reason Scorsese is now known for more variety is these films, yeah? This is where Scorsese went, hello, I can do something different. 
Um, and I suppose one of the most different things about it is the leading man is not De Niro. This is the first time that the the a, a Martin Scorsese film with a with a main you know a lead actor, uh, you know, that, centering around a, a male uh, main character isn't Robert De Niro, and it's a guy called Griffin Dunn. Uh, did he strike you as a typical Scorsese leading man? Um, not really. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's a bit of a. I don't know the right word for him. He's a bit of a not a dweeb, but like he's not like. He's he's meant to be the kind of character. He's just a guy. Yeah, he's exactly. I think he's he's the first time really that Scorsese's portraying a character on screen that the people watching the movie are like, oh yeah, I could be that guy because you can't be Jake LaMotta. Do you know what I mean? That's these these characters yeah. are so kind of, you know, he, you know the saxophone player in New York, New York, played by De Niro, is this kind of totally kind of. Uh, you know, larger than life character, King Comedy and, and Taxi Driver, these are all kind of characters on the extreme that most people watching the movie are like, no, that's not me. But Griffin Dunn plays this guy, he just works in an office. His 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 life isn't his 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 job isn't very interesting, his life isn't very interesting. And this night is about his life getting really, really interesting when it normally doesn't. So I think the audience is probably identifying more closely with, with Griffin Dunn than they perhaps have with other Scorsese characters they've watched to this point. Yeah. And what, what did it? How did it? What was New York like for you in this movie? Because it's a very New York film. You know, it's all it's all over the city of New York at night. How, how did New York play out as a as a character in the movie for you? Yeah, very. It's very bustling. Isn't it? It's yeah. just that's very busy. Yeah, it, it reminds me a little bit of uh, of. I mean, obviously, the the film has a specific nightmare logic because what happens is he meets someone, he goes off to sort of hang out with them, and things take a turn and a turn and a turn for the worse, and it plays out like a nightmare, and it follows some of the same story beats as the Wizard of Oz. So it's kind of got this kind of like. Martin Scorsese's films often have this, you know, he's, he's seen as this really naturalistic or realistic director, but actually his films are often very hyper-real, and the events in this take you, like, further and further into, into like, this mad world. But at its heart, it just it shows you, like, New York at night, doesn't it, at that time? It reminded me a little bit of being like a, like, you know, this is London for me rather than New York, but you know, a young man on your own in the big city ending up out for the night somewhere miles away from home. You're not quite sure how you're going to get home. It's one of those nights. It's, you know, everything's kind of taking a turn. Things get a bit strange. You think, oh, I'm probably on the night bus tonight. Have I got enough money for the, you know, for the trip home? What am I going to do? It, it, not that anything this eventful ever happened to me, but it kind of reminded me of that kind of vibe, which, which, which I liked. But I guess the other question is, what, what's your, what are your impressions of what actual genre of film you were watching? When this first started... And he's meeting Rosanna Arquette in the late night diner because he's bored and he's reading a book in the diner and, and this pretty girl starts talking to him. Um, what sort of film did you think you were watching at that point? Leaving aside that it's a Scorsese film and you kind of have some expectations. What, what sort of genre did you think you were watching at the start? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard to pinpoint... Uh... Is it quite a thriller? Or it's kind of it's kind of a spooky film, isn't it? It's yeah. not spooky in like horror sense, but it's like an unnerving kind of film. Yeah, it's sort of I mean, because it's like yeah. Go ahead. So it's just it's quite it's quite unsettling. Yeah, there's no kind of definitive what's going to happen next thing. It's just. Uh, I think I think the, it's the, worrying. <laughs> the way the film it, 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 it creates this huge sort of anxiety, doesn't it, all the time. And, yes. and part of that is that a lot, some of the anxiety emanates from 
quite everyday things. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's not the anxiety created by like a huge natural disaster or he witnesses a murder and then he's on the run for the rest of the movie, a big dramatic event. He's in the taxi and he's holding the money in his hand. I don't know why he's not holding it in his wallet, but he's holding it in his hand and then he puts it in the that little kind of pool, that, that little kind of well in the in the door handle. To put, I don't know why he puts it there, but the car swerves and the windows open and his money goes out the door. And that's kind of a very everyday sort of thing to go wrong. I mean, even if that's never happened to you, you can imagine, oh shit, what would happen to me if I was in a taxi and I dropped my money? Do you know what I mean? Or if I found I'd lost my wallet. Or then later he's trying to get the, the subway home and at midnight they, they change the fare. So he thought he had enough money and now he doesn't. These are very kind of... He litters the film with relatively ordinary things which could happen to you. Do you know what I mean? But what he does is he layers so many of them on top of the other that by the end of the film, he's this guy's in fucking hell. You know. So it was yeah. it, it was it was interesting. That it didn't have a single instigating event the way these things sometimes do. You know, like, like a good example would be you've witnessed a murder. Now what do you do? You've created this big dramatic event and everything. But what, what this does is like he the girl the girl the, the Rosanna Arquette is the woman who starts talking to him. What did you think of her at the start? Did she seem a bit off or did she just seem a bit like, oh, she seems nice. What did you think when you first seen her talk to Griffin Dunn in the, in the, in the cafe? Um, Not that she had like an ulterior motive, but not everything was what it seemed with her. Yeah, but maybe not. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but it wasn't, it probably wasn't quite enough for you to go, mate, don't go and visit her. Do you know what I mean? Don't call her. Yeah, she, not not fully nefarious, but like there's a lot happening yeah, here. Because she gets her number. This is obviously pre off mobile phone. She gets her number, and he decides, you know what? She seemed nice. She seemed interested in me. I'm going to give her a call. And maybe he just he's so sick of being bored at home. Another typical weeknight. Yeah, I'm going to call her. Let's see what happens. There were there weren't enough red flags at that time to say Griffin, don't do it. So he calls her and he goes off to see her. And then something goes wrong in the taxi. And then he gets to her apartment where she stays and things are a bit strange. And each little thing kind of ratchets it up. So he never gets jolted from naught to 60, like in five seconds. Each little event sort of develops and develops and develops until eventually he's like, shit, I don't know if I'm going to survive the night, you know? Yeah. Did you like, no, how, that, did you like how that played out? What did you think of it as, it as it all played out? Yeah, it was. it was very much a case of it's hard to describe the way the film makes you feel, but it was like a kind of, you get really engrossed and connected to the main character right away. And you're worried, you know, is he going to get out of this? Because you're not, you're not entirely confident and little things like that did, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, what, I mean, first of all, I described it as a dark comedy up front. Would you agree with that description? Did did this come across as a comedy to you? I think Martin Scorsese's style of film is that it's not always like hilarious. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it's but it's got its funny moments just through its kind of natural just the natural delivery of the dialogue yeah. and the shooting and the facial expressions, reactions, body language. Yeah. So I wouldn't say it was particularly I like Wolf of Wall Street has got some very funny moments. But at the end of the day it is a guy that was breaking the law and scamming people out of lots of money. Yeah. So I wouldn't necessarily say that's a comedy in the traditional sense. Yeah, I know what you mean. There are funny moments, yeah. But So in, in this, I mean, he goes to the girl's apartment and she shares a flat with an artist who's really quite strange and doing papier-mâché stuff and his, his shirt gets papier-mâché on it so he has to wash his shirt. The girl isn't there. 
Rosanna Arquette, who invited him over, isn't there. He wonders what's going on. When he does talk to her, it's like she's interested, but she isn't. She's like, you know, she talks about how she's got an ex-husband or husband she's separated from. And it's quite little red flags start to go up there and he's really not sure. And at this point, he's like, you know, he's basically saying, does he hang on for a shag or doesn't he? And then he decides hmm. to to walk out, and he finds himself in a in a in a in a cafe, and like, does you know? I think he, he either loses his keys or he has to get back to the apartment. But each little thing takes him further away from home, further and further. Then he tries to go back and like to see talk to Rosanna Arquette, and then things go horribly wrong there. And by the end of it, he's kind of he's trying. You know, the, he meets people that are connected to stuff he's just done. He sees like someone commit a robbery, um, but because of things that happen or people he has conversations with, he gets mistaken for a robber, and then people are chasing him through the street. The, there's a bit that the, I, I don't want to spoil the plot because the way it plays out, I think, is really beautifully done. But there's a really good bit at the end where all of this is kind of playing out, and he's hiding on a fire escape because people are tr- people are literally like in a, in a vigilante mob going after him. He thinks he's going to get killed for, for stuff that he hasn't done. He looks through the window at the next apartment block and sees a domestic dispute between husband and wife escalate to the point the wife pulls a gun and shoots the husband and he goes ah and he goes i'll probably get the blame for that and i thought that just made me laugh um and then it's kind of like i say did did you spot the the sort of the wizard of oz type elements i mean i'm the sort of geek who looks that stuff up did you did you see any of that in it or no that's your thing isn't it (laughs) (laughs) did you on the other hand spot the martin scorsese cameo in the film I did not. Who did he play? In the weird club that he ends up going to, the nightclub, where I think he's he's trying to find Rosanna Arquette in the nightclub, and he goes there, and it's a strange night. Martin Scorsese is uh, up above, standing over the DJ, like holding a spotlight. Oh, okay. Nope, didn't clock that at all. <laughs> so, what what about the way the the story resolves itself and the film ends? What what did you think of that? Without spoiling what happens, what did you think of the way it played out? I think it's kind of like, I think as soon as I saw the credits, I kind of went, whew, what a yeah. night. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, that was that was the ending for me. And I thought that was really effective. Yeah. And a film makes you do that. Not like, I don't think horrors count because that's what they're designed to do. You're meant to kind of go, oh, thank fuck that's over. But yeah, no, for me, it was kind of like a, whew. That guy was in for a rough night, wasn't he? Yeah, it's like he's, he's basically gone on this kind of like, demented kind of like, nightmarish kind of journey through the city of New York and he's never going to be the same after that is he it's like his his you know his uh his his perspective on life is always going to be different after that isn't it yeah totally so enjoy it glad you watched it yeah it was just uh it's just it's one of those films you know you don't you don't expect much and therefore you actually get a wee bit surprised so yeah. I actually think there should be a thing where people aren't allowed to tell you what they think of a film. Yeah. They can say, "Oh, mate, I just saw the new the new Creed film. Get it watched. Don't say anything else. Yeah, get it watched. I I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, because yeah. like that's happened to me with Pulp Fiction. It happened to me with Goodfellas. It happens to me with every good film that was made in the twentieth century. Basically, you've heard all it about to me it with everything. You get to see it. Same with everything, all everything, everywhere, all at once. It's not even that I've heard everything about it. I just go into the film thinking this is going to blow my socks off, and I get there, and it's just a film. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So I think that's how. I know that's not how the film industry works. That's just me being very particular and OCD. Mm. But I think you, for me, my personal enjoyment of the film is somewhat. 
Yeah, I mean, so we mild, you know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we obviously have to discuss the film, otherwise we don't have a <laughs> we don't have a podcast. But I think we've tried of to course. we've tried to give the audience kind of just enough hints about the film without telling you too much about it. But I I think I think this is definitely worth a watch for you know just that it's like you say I think it's 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 typical Scorsese and less typical Scorsese at the same time, isn't it? Um, I think it's worth just watching for a change of pace for him from his early stuff and for a. Yeah, quite a quite a striking, like quirky kind of you know night out gone wrong storyline. Where you might have seen films like this before, like uh, John Landis's Into the Night. If you're as old as I am, you've seen that kind of thing, or other other films where like one night everything goes a bit nuts. But this is really kind of really interesting, and Scorsese kind of tortures the main character and by extension the audience in, in an interesting way. So this is an interesting film to to watch and we recommend it without without trying to raise expectations too high or like like james says but get this watched i think you'll find it interesting Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we discuss a huge director's alien invasion thriller which had a tortuous development process and eventually turned into not one but two very different other films. The one that got away for episode 35 is Steven Spielberg's Night Skies. Um, so, James... Uh, were you aware of this like one that got away before we nominated it for the podcast? Have you heard anecdotes about this before? Not at all. Um, when, when we announced we were going to do this for the pod, uh, what did you find out on your on your travels on your on your studies of of, of, of the story? Um, yeah, it's very Spielberg, isn't it? The, the film that was going to get made, and I do agree that we basically ended up making the same kind of film just over two films. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it was bog standard Spielberg for me. Yeah, I mean, I'm slightly, I'm slightly different about how bog standard Spielberg it was in the sense that. Let, let me ask it this way: How many out and out scary films do you think Steven Spielberg has directed? Uh, none that come to mind. I mean, Schindler's List is pretty scary because the fucking Nazis, but it's not a traditional scary film. Um. I mean, the one I'm thinking of is Jaws, right? In which, you know, shark attacks and everything else. That's the the, audience, the yeah. audience is meant to be kind of, oh shit, he's going into the boat. What did he see? Oh my God, it's the dead fisherman's head. Like that kind of jump jump out of your seat suspense thriller. Do you know what I mean? He's not made uh, that many films. So the thing that, of that kind of film. So the thing that interested me was that this could have been another movie like that. Now maybe Spielberg felt that he'd done everything he could with Jaws, and he, you know, he should go off and do other things. He clearly, from the films he did do in the nineteen eighties, had other things that he was trying to do, much more kind of family, family movies, human stories, that kind of thing. But to to give the background to this, what I think is interesting is nineteen seventy eight, right? Close Encounters of the Third Kind has just come out, right? And amazingly, right? You, you look at like Jaws, right? Jaws comes out and makes the equivalent in 1970s money of a billion dollars, right? It's a fucking massive hit, right? It is only surpassed by Star Wars in terms of how big a hit Jaws is. Close Encounters does slightly more money than Jaws, right? So Steven Spielberg has done two films in a row which are absolutely enormous, okay? He's basically invented the modern blockbuster. 
um, you know, for good or for ill. He's seen as being like a key part of the new Hollywood, but he also kind of brought an end to the new Hollywood as we know it, because, you know, never again are the studios going to give massive budgets to the likes of William Friedkin, you know, Scorsese, Hal Ashby, people like that. The very individualist director of the 70s, Scorsese was a big name, but had to fight for his budgets until he met a young man called Leonardo DiCaprio, right? <laughs> because Spielberg and George Lucas said, guys, come over here. I think, and, and they're seen as like in opposition in some ways to Scorsese and those people, and they're not. Scorsese and Spielberg are friends and they appreciate each other's work. I mean, I think Spielberg would have loved to have seen a world, I think, where, you know, for your more grown-up kind of dark films, you go and see, uh, you know, Scorsese films. And for your general kind of films that maybe all the family can see, you watch a Spielberg film. He's happy to coexist. But Hollywood's not like that. Hollywood goes, oh, that's where the money is. Let's fucking make those movies. So he's just done two movies like that. And they were twisting his arm for a sequel to Close Encounters. You seen Close Encounters? Yes. A while ago. Yeah. So, you know, man, you know, he takes all those alien and, you know, alien sighting and all of those old, you know, uh, UFOs and all that stuff and turns it into like the ultimate, wow, aliens are out there. Let's go and communicate with them kind of thing. Huge film. Everyone wants to see another one. And Spielberg was like, I don't want to do Close Encounters 2. What the fuck would I do? You know, like, do I, do I, you know, because Close Encounters ends with like them saying, let's go and find the aliens. Is that the story he's going to tell? He doesn't want to do that, but they want another alien movie from him. So in the late 70s, he starts developing a new story, Night Skies, right? And this is going to be like a scary film. This is going to be, rather than, you know, cute aliens, this is going to be terrifying aliens. Now, the the, the alien kind of contact in Close Encounters is initially scary, but without spoiling the plot, surely everyone's seen Close Encounters. When the, 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 the team, the government team or the scientists start communicating with the aliens they go all oh, right these aliens just want to talk to us this is a chance this is like spielberg going into awe and wonder going this is the you know the, there's a whole world out there we need to go and explore it this was spielberg going why don't we have some aliens who are fucking proper bastards who like invade and are trying to hurt people this was what spielberg wanted to do right and it's a it's a small it's a house in a small town or in a you know, remote rural area and they're stuck at home their the, the house is under siege and the aliens start coming after them in their own house right so it's meant to be like, it's it's almost more of a follow-up to Jaws than it is a follow-up to Close Encounters, but it is about aliens, right? So at this point, right, Spielberg is the absolute fucking main man. He's made, you know, every film he's done, but at this point he's made money. However, something sort of changed a little bit. Have you heard of a film called 1941? Yes, but I don't know why. It came out in 1979. It was the next film that, that Spielberg had on, on the list. You know, if he was going to do Night Skies, it would be after 19, you know, the, the, this next one. 1941 is a film set the night before Pearl Harbor. So it's to set on December the 5th, 1941 in California. So it's, uh, it's, so it's wartime or, you know, 1940s type stuff. It's just about the eve of war. Uh, there's a, a an abortive uh, submarine attack by the Japanese off the coast of uh, uh, California and various different lo local characters have to do something about it. Um, except it was a comedy. It was a big budget screwball comedy with John Belushi from the Blues Brothers uh, as, as the main character and it's all loud and noisy and brash. Imagine what? Imagine, imagine the Blues Brothers set in 1940. Like total mayhem comedy. Jesus Christ. So it's slightly surprising that there'd be a Spielberg film like that. Now, it didn't lose money. It made money, but it wasn't nearly as big a hit as the previous ones. It sort of just about made money. But it was hated. It got an absolute critical beating. 
everybody hates this film and, and Spielberg does not do many comedies. I mean, rack your brains. How many Spielberg comedies have you watched? Not many. Not many. And I often, I'm often not super keen on the, the comedy elements that he introduces into other films like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, right? So he took a kicking. This wasn't a flop, but it was a real critical failure and it, it like made it made a few quid, right? Not 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 a success. It was a failure. And amazingly, right, Steven Spielberg was uh, was finding it difficult to get his next film made after that. If you can imagine the guy directs Jaws and Close Encounters and has one film which people don't like, which didn't lose them a lot of money, but he is like, oh, Spielberg, fucking hell, what a waste of time that is. Don't, he's, you know, flashing the pan. Don't let him make another film, you know, with, with all the money in the world, which is a weird situation. Can, I mean, I, with all you know about Spielberg, who's already the biggest director in the world before you were even born, can, can you imagine a world in which Spielberg is going through a period where people are looking at him funny and don't want to make his next movie? Yeah, that is a little bit wild, isn't it? It is wild. So it, it puts the brakes on the next film that he wants to make. Um, and he's he's still knocking around with this. He gets a guy called John Sayles to write a script based on the ideas. Now, John Sayles did some other horror stuff. He was involved in Piranha and The Howling. And then he went on to be a very respected uh, indie director. Um, he couldn't decide whether he was going to direct this movie himself or produce it for another director. But Night Skies is still a film he wants to make. In the meantime... He's trying to get ready to the Lost Ark made, which, again, believe it or not, imagine a world where this is happening, James. At the time, the studio was a bit unsure whether Road to the Lost Ark was going to be a success. Oh, dear. Right? So the guy who did Star Wars, and I know people have got mixed feelings about George Lucas, right? But the guy who did Star Wars writing a movie or creating a storyline for Steven Spielberg to direct based on great adventure stories with a a central character played by Harrison Ford with a bullwhip like chasing the Nazis. They weren't sure that was going to be a hit. Believe it or not, that's the world of 1980-81, okay? So he's very focused on that. He still wants to make Night Skies, direct or produce. It's it's thinking of happening. It's going to be kind of like a B-movie style, but Jaws is a B-movie. I mean, Close Encounters is a B-movie, just done on a big scale. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, aliens terrorising people in a, in a rural house. That's the whole of the 1950s for you. Do you know what I mean? And a killer shot. He's like, but he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's in this suspense world. And Raiders of the Lost Ark is a big hit. He can do whatever he wants. But while he's, while he's, there's, it's a long, it's a long, tough shoot making Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, the, you know, the famous bit where Indiana Jones, like, decides he can't be bothered with a, a, a sword fight, shoots the guy and, and walks off. Yeah. They, they, yeah. they came up with that because everyone in the crew, including Spielberg and, um, uh, and, and Harrison Ford had the shits at that moment. They had food poisoning. Yeah, I remember kind of that. Yeah. And, and they all looked at themselves and said, we're not going to get a complicated sword fight in the can here. Let's fucking shoot the guy and go home, right? Let's go home and rehydrate, okay? So that's the kind of tough shoot they were on. And Spielberg had a lot of time on his own just sitting thinking about, you know, trying to think about the movie. And he found himself dwelling on his childhood a lot, right? And he started thinking a lot about being a lonely kid on his own and, you know... Uh, his mum and dad separate, which is obviously something that played a large part in his thinking, which is why he's done the Fablemans this year. And he thought a lonely kid meeting an alien is much more the kind of um, film that he wants to make. And interestingly, in, in the screenplay of Night Skies, which is available online, by the way, I'll, I'll, I'll post, post a link when I have time. 
there all the aliens but one are kind of evil and nasty trying to hurt people and there's one friendly alien called buddy that they that the, the humans give the aliens names to try and differentiate them and buddy is this more friendly alien who's not like the others and doesn't want to hurt them and the story plays out in a slightly different way because of that and at the end because buddy doesn't help the 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 evil aliens hurt people they leave him on his own and he's stuck and he's stranded on earth which is like the last shot of the night skies movie that we're going to make so what spielberg does is he says why don't i make a movie about the nice alien that gets stranded and tie it together with this story of his, um, you know, of, 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 of the lonely kid. And that became E.T. So okay. he, he kind of he kind of lets Night Skies go, which is a bit, a bit, you know, not everyone that was working on the film with him was happy about that. John Sells writes the script and he knows there's going to be rewrites. He's, whatever, he got paid, he doesn't care, right? But Rick Baker was going to do the special effects for the scary aliens. Now, Rick Baker, who did American Werewolf in London and, and like, you know, some of the, all these terrifying kind of horror effects. So he's really going all out. And Rick Baker was like, uh, do I don't want a cute alien? Do I want to do E.T.? And, and Spielberg, funnily enough, you know, Spielberg's persona is kind of quite affable. Spielberg really fell out with Rick Baker. He said, oh, you know, you know I, and I think it's probably because Spielberg's under a lot of pressure to make his movie. And he's like, well, fuck you, then I'm going to do this with somebody else. It kind of falls out with Rick Baker, which is a very unspielberg thing to do. But he goes and does E.T. and the rest is history, right? E, you know, E.T. is this massive hit. The idea of the people being terrorised in their own home, he turned into a film called Poltergeist, which I'm not sure if you've seen, mate. you seen Poltergeist? No, I've heard of it, though. Yeah, so this came out in 1982. So the, these two films that he does in, that, that happen instead, both come out in 1982, E.T. and uh, Poltergeist. Poltergeist is produced by Spielberg, but directed by another guy, Toby Hooper, who did Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So an out-and-out horror director. So they, they change the story. So instead of aliens terrifying people and attacking their own home, it's ghosts, it's poltergeists. So he takes the idea of Night Skies and takes part of it and, and does it as like an alien story about a kid and his friendly alien who loves M&Ms. Um, and then he does... Uh, the, 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 the scary aspect of the story is poltergeists. He does it off on different things. So first thing is, you know, do you think that's the right outcome? Do you think he, do you think he was better off doing E.T. instead? I don't know. I don't really like ET, but that's just me. Everyone else seems to fucking love it. I'm, I'm not keen I think on it. It's I'm boring. Not, I'm not massively keen on ET either. And I wonder if, as a kid, I was just expecting anything sci-fi to have more action in it than than ET had. But it's never. I, I must. I must have no soul or something because the whole ET stuff just doesn't kind of chime in me. Everyone else, but you know, it looks like a fucking scrotum. Yeah, that's the problem. Streaming in tears, and you know, the the special effects of the bikes riding hasn't dated well. People love the central story. The kid meets an alien that he loves. I think the whole storyline's played out better in the Iron Giant, by the way. But that's that's just me. Um, but career-wise, I mean, ET put him. You know, having had that dip with 1941, he does Raiders of the Lost Ark. And follows it up with E.T. So Spielberg is totally back. So career-wise, it was probably the right thing to do. But aside from that, I mean, would you, would you have liked to have seen this storyline, this Night Sky story? Would you have liked to have seen Spielberg scare the shit out of us again with an alien story? Um, I mean, I'm not too keen on horror. So maybe you're better answering that question than I am. But, because I'm a little pussy-ass bitch. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but like... I don't know. I liked. I didn't find Jaws particularly scary. I found it thrilling. Mm. Um. So maybe if it was more than that kind of ilk. But then the problem I have with that is, is that you're just making a film that's Jaws because yeah, you know Jaws worked, and I don't like that shit either. So I'm always up for someone like Spielberg doing what they want to make. Yeah. You know, if they want to make it and they can do it justice, then you know, fair enough. 
and yeah. I'd probably get around to watching it. Um, you see, I, I've li- I'd have liked to have seen this movie. I mean, this movie generally gets done as much of a, a B-movie straight-to-videos type thing. I mean, there's a couple of films that came out of this similar story on, like, Critters and stuff like that, and it's been spoofed any number of times. So maybe it would all have been dated, but I would have liked to have seen Spielberg fucking, you know, scare people again. Honestly, if you said to Spielberg, look, I'm a genie, I can wave a magic wand, and instead of making E.T., you can make Night Skies instead, how about it? He'd laugh you out of his office, wouldn't he? You'd say, the guy's E.T., do you know what I mean? Of course I'm going to do E.T. instead. It's a very personal story to him, and it was a huge hit. So he's he's not going to do Night Skies instead of E.T. I quite fancy the idea of him doing Night Skies as well. I quite like the idea of him revisiting this a bit later, because I'll tell you what there is. Spielberg had a bit of a funny 80s, right? He does he does E.T., and then he does um, he does another Indiana Jones film, Temple of Doom. Obviously, it's a big hit, but you know I'm not I'm not as keen on it as I am on the other Indiana Jones films. It's obviously better than Crystal Skull, yeah. but, but that's another story. Um, he does he does <laughs> he does the Color Purple, which it makes money and gets lots of Oscar nominations. But it's a bit like Spielberg is maybe put back in his box a little bit. So I know Spielberg, you don't make movies like this. Go back to Indiana Jones. And only later did he really get back to get to make those serious films. He did Empire of the Sun. You seen that with um, Christ, young Christian Bale? Christian Bale, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then you've had this little bit of a lull because he, the rest of his eighties doesn't really, you know, you know, he, he does another Indiana Jones film in eighty nine, and then and then then things happen for him in the nineties. Forget about Hook. He does Jurassic Park. He does Spielberg. All of that, right? He uh, sort of Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, and and you know, the, you know, Spielberg has this amazing nineties. But right at the end of the eighties. He does a movie called Always, which fucking hell, man! It's a remake of an old like war film called about a guy named Joe about a guy who comes back as a ghost, and it's all fucking heartwarming and sentimental. And if anything, if any movie could be dropped out of Spielberg's filmography, it's that one. I mean, I don't, I really don't like Hook, but um, Always, it's so inconsequential. If 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 I was going to wave a magic wand over Spielberg's career, I would say late eighties. Slip, forget about always, and slip in night skies. Do that instead, right at the end of the eighties, and just say, right before I go off and do my, the rest of my Spielberg stuff, why don't I just go back and scare the shit out of people a little bit with this this kind of like haunted house movie or alien invasion movie? I'd have liked to have seen that. I I, I would like to see Spielberg just show off his just nasty side just once more before he goes and does his ninety Spielberg thing. But that's just me. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, if you're if you're swapping out one film and it's for a film that got away and you know the film that you already made was shit, then why wouldn't you gamble on yeah. one that might have not been shit? I, I it's a no-brainer, that. really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that's that. So Spielberg, I mean, interesting enough, mate, um, you, what's your favourite sort of Spielberg era? Because he has these, these different sections of his career, doesn't he? Like you know, the 70s up to like Raiders, he's got the rest of his 80s, he's got his 90s output and everything since. What's your favourite Spielberg era when you look at kind of the you know, films grouped together? Yeah, I think from like the early nineties, ignoring Hook, to um, Catch Me If You Can. Yeah, you get a bit I of everything. That's probably you get my favorite era. Get a bit of everything in that era, don't you? I mean, when does yeah. Minority, does Minority Report come out the same year as Catch Me If You Can? Okay, up to Minority Report. Then, if that's yeah. not the same year, yeah. I mean, that's that's all, it's almost a decade, isn't it? If you go ninety three. Um, with Schindler's List and Jurassic Park through to Minority Report, you get just about everything, don't you? You get a bit of everything that Spielberg is good at, right? You get like, you know, 
the the T-Rex chase in, in that, you get like serious drama, you get, you know, the only thing you don't get in that era is an Indiana Jones film. That's fine by me. You're more keen on Indiana Jones than I am. <laughs> yeah, mainly Raiders. Raiders is my favourite. The highlight of the entire franchise for me is short round saying Mr. Jones. <laughs> That's it for me. I don't. I don't give a shit about the rest of that. Yeah, the only uh, the, that is the only things worse than Doctor Jones for me in the whole franchise is the end of Doctor is, Jones. Sorry, is, is, Chris, is Crystal Skull and Ray Winstone's accent. Um, I re- I, I love Kehu Kwan. I really like him in the Goonies, and I really liked him in Everything Everywhere. But I'm not keen on this kind of cute, annoying comedy sidekick shit that like Spielberg and Lucas started to do after that. But that that's a side issue. Night Skies is is a film that Spielberg didn't make. I mean, if you want to imagine what it was like, the first hour of Close Encounters gives you an idea. The horror, the, the scary shocks of um, of Jaws obviously would give you an idea. Um, there's some B-movies from the 80s about the same story, like Critters and stuff like that, which, I mean, would be about half as good as anything Spielberg did. Um, and, and obviously Poltergeist, which he had a, a big creative input into. So there's, there's lots of kind of links out there to what this film could have looked like. Personally, I'd have liked to see him do it. We close the features episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we shine a light on the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom and their obsession with remaking, rebooting, reimagining, or just plain recycling older films. Quite often this is our chance to let off steam and rant at a terrible and unworthy remake which sullies the reputation of an old classic, but every now and again the new film holds up under our roof this examination and emerges from the Hate Watch with some credit. Later on we will also discuss a remake restoration. Once we've finished asking if a remake was unnecessary and should be removed, we will suggest a remake that we think should happen because it needs to be done right this time. This month we discuss a modern day reboot of a story from the 1980s which had already been very successfully filmed, even though the source material was called out as problematic and seems out of step with current attitudes. The remake hate watch for episode 35 is Roald Dahl's The Witches. So... Proposing we don't spend a huge amount of time on Roald Dahl's The Witches, or at least leave enough time to do the, the remake restoration, which I, I thought was quite an interesting one given the time of year. But James, your history with The Witches, the original Roald Dahl book, mean anything to you? Did you read it as a kid or anything think, like that? You know what? I think I was, I've read the book and I was made to watch that film when I was about five. Ooh, that's early. My teachers were a bunch of dickheads. <laughs> hey! Yeah, it's... Um, because I, I think the 1990 version of The Witches, is it's about as scary as you can get away with in a kid's film, isn't it? It's quite scary for a film aimed at younger viewers, isn't it? Yeah. It's, uh, it's got some really spooky moments, the original one. Um, but I don't remember it very fondly, if I'm being completely honest. And why is that? Because you watched it too young, or was it just something... What was it about? Definitely it far too young. Yeah, I wasn't a fan. Have you caught up with it since? Like, have you watched it when you were older and had any thoughts, or is it only that early? No, fuck experience? that. <laughs> You're not coming back to no. it. No. <laughs> it's interesting. The, the original Roald Dahl book came out in something like 1983, 1984, so it was quite late period Roald Dahl. I mean, you think about Willy Wonka and stuff, and that, that was all being written in the 60s. Um, the book, The Witches, came out to sort of mixed reviews. There were contemporary accusations at the time of misogyny. It was like the portrayal of, of, of female characters was 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 deemed unpleasant in the film. Um, although, generally speaking, Dahl's adult characters are always kind of given a bit of a, a hiding, and he has he has you know he has some very sympathetic female characters in some of his other stories. Retrospectively, he's been 
accused of anti-Semitism because of things he actually said about the Jews, which are blatantly, wildly anti-Semitic. Um, no. uh, he said something not far off, you know, you know, you wouldn't, I don't condone genocide, but the Jews were, you know, but he didn't like the Jews very much. And you kind of, you can understand why people didn't like them, which is like, fucking hell, mate. Um, and people have looked back at like the, the drawings and the descriptions of the witches in this and the fact that they are secretly preying on children and, and, and have, you know, have, you know, more money, you know, can have a license to print money. And people look back at it and go, is this, is, you know, this feels like the work of an anti-Semite, even if he wasn't being overtly anti-Semitic. So not, you know, kind of problematic and kind of certainly not, you know, Dahl's always had a bit of a kind of a, a, a dark edge to what he writes. But this is seen as being a little bit, oh, this is he's gone really dark here. Um, the 1990 version, it was very successful because they got a genuinely brilliant director, a guy called Nicholas Rogue, uh, who did a film called Don't Look Now, which is a really unsettling and disturbing film. So they got someone who's made films that would scare anyone and got him to do a kid's film, which is it's, it's an interesting thing when it happens. And he uses proper film technique to make it, it quite scary and dark, you know, in terms of the the angle that you shoot at you know scares and kids being stuck behind thing uh, behind kind of uh, you know barriers with witches closing in on them it's genuinely scary and, and made that you know I think they got Nick Rogue in because he'd had a fantastic seventies and an indifferent eighties so he was available. Um, it's got a bit of a shit ending. Do you remember the ending of the witches? Not really. No. What happens? Uh, well, it, not to spoil it too much for everybody. These films have been out for a long time. In the book. The, the boy has been turned into a mouse by the witches and isn't, they don't really know if they're going to, you know, turn him back. And they kind of say they're going to go off on a mission to sort of kill all the witches in, in America because, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're hurting all the children. But the kid's been turned into a mouse and he stays that way. And it's kind of like, oh, wow, this is quite dark. This kid's a mouse for the rest of his life, right? And in the movie, they just get one of the one of the main characters, the, the, the witch, a witch who survived and maybe isn't quite as bad as the other witches, to just turn up in the night and change him back. It's a really tacked-on happy ending at the end of the 1990 version of The Witches. Apart from that, it's seen as being a pretty strong film. Having said that, it didn't feel like there was necessarily much room for a remake. Now, coming in on the remake, what did you think of it? I mean, what, did you when it came out, did you think, oh, I fancy watching that? Or did you no, want to watch didn't it? give a shit. And what did you think no, about it? No, I don't it? like Anne Hath. You don't so like Anne Hath? What I remembered... No, I think she's fucking boring. Um, <laughs> but what... What I remember the big thing at the time was is that before I'd even seen the film, there was the controversy with um, the way the witch's hands were depicted. Yeah. So they they don't have full, full fingers. They have, like, basically a thumb and then all of their fingers missing and they've got, like, a pinky. Yeah. So it's, it's depicting them with... Um, Having like this sort of what is it, what is a genuine disability that people live with? Yeah, um, as something that's like sort of nefarious. Um, yeah, it falls into all so those I categories, remember that. doesn't it? And also the Anne Hathaway's got a scar, hasn't she? All the witches have got like a scar on their face or something. It looks like that, and it's like there are a lot of people with like facial scarring who've kind of said, you know what, I've got this scar because I fell off my bike when I was a kid, or I, I've got this scar because I had surgery, like, and and, and I'm always going to have to live with a scar. But apparently, that makes me the fucking villain in every story ever. Do you know what I mean? Um, but. The the other problem with this is that it, it plays into all the all the this and this is goes back to the original storyline is and this is the problem with making this movie in twenty twenties it basically says you know that woman that woman who's over fifty in your village and lives on her own she's probably weird she's probably scary she's probably a witch do you know what I mean 
<laughs> it's like any 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 woman who's kind of not married and smiling and simpering and being nice is basically an evil you know an evil witch character. There is you know or apart from the uh, you know the mate the boy's granny, but the fact is, is it's like it just plays into all these stereotypes of like you know like the evil stepmother, the the, the evil woman who lives on her own, the evil, you know the, evil, the an, old, an older woman with no children you know is probably evil. And it's like. Guys, things have moved on. And the idea that, like, a witch is automatically evil and kills kids is really outdated as well. But they decided to do a 2020 version. And having watched it, what did you think? Um, I genuinely couldn't be bothered with it. I remember... what I think what I was really put off with was the kind of depictions of those hands in that. Mm. So, what, I remember our mutual friend, um, her brother, I remember when we went to one of the football games that we went to together. Her brother's got the same kind of condition where his hands aren't fully yeah. like developed or whatever it is. And he was really annoyed at it. So yeah. I was kind of, I remember she, your pal had shared it. And I remember reading it thinking, wow, I hadn't even thought of how much, mm. how that could really annoy someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and how impactful that is. And I thought, you know, I can't really be bothered with this. And then we're doing it for the podcast. And I thought, right, this film's a way of getting absolute drubbing. And to be honest, I thought the actual film itself wasn't, you know, abysmal, if you know what I'm saying. Like, mm. it wasn't a terrible film. The film didn't need to be remade. There was no demand for it. It was just to try and make some money for, like, a newer audience for kids that might have been, you know, getting introduced to the Roald Dahl books. I mean, it's, it's Robert Zemeckis, um, right? So it's competently made. Yeah, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't necessarily, but the, just the kind of, the kind of clumsy blunders mm. that seem to have kind of come with the way they've made this film were just... Yeah, not great, are they? It's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's another one. They've got a, they've got a really good cast, right? You know, Octavia Spencer, Anne Hathaway, although you don't like uh, uh, Stanley Tucci, all, all of these people in, in the film. But it's like they've they've moved it to um, the deep south of the United States, but they don't have any of that gothic flavor. Do you remember we watched um, Eve's Bayou for the for the movie uh, for the podcast? And how that had yes. that really gothic atmosphere. This doesn't. They've, it's it's happening in like the deep south. Some of it even happens in New Orleans, but it doesn't have any gothic atmosphere. It's got too much CGI. Everyone in it is like doing a competent job, but it's just a bit flat, isn't it? It's like okay, whatever. Um, what I what I thought was interesting about seeing this film remade is that if you're if you're going to make a new movie like. And it's a Netflix film or whatever it was on, maybe not Netflix, but it was. I think it was more streamed than than shown at the cinema about witches, right? I know they're trying to do Roald Dahl's The Witches because there's this obsession with doing new IP, but people like witches. People like stories about witches, and there are loads of films and story, you know, to be made about witches. I think they got away with doing a new one. And if you look at the mod- more modern day books and stories about witches, so the witches and the Philip Pullman stories, Terry Pratchett's witches are brilliant. J.K. Rowling, all the female characters who have magical powers in that are witches, right? And there's things like Wicked and the Worst Witch and that sort of thing. Roald Dahl's been left behind, hasn't he? The, these the, the people want a more kind of everything from like a kid story to some like American horror story, where like one of the series is about witches. I think that witches don't have to be the good guys. In fact, it's often more interesting if there are good guys and bad guys among the witches. Do you know what I mean? But they, they, people just want to see the secret world, and I, and I think this old fashioned, you know, oh they're they're all evil and they're all nasty, and they've got if any any woman who's got a wart on her face or her eyebrows are a bit too hairy, she's a witch. It's like nineteen fifties attitudes. I mean, it's so it's so outdated. And what they could have done with this money, if you ask me, was make I don't know Weird Sisters by Terry Pratchett into a film, right? With that money and that cast, and you've had a massive hit on your hands. Um, 
I, I just, I, it just shows a, a real deep lack of imagination, you know. Yeah, it's not, it's not really it's, clumsy. It's not even. Oh, it's problematic. They shouldn't have done it. You want to do a film about witches? There's like, fucking throw a tennis ball into a bookshop, right? And you will hit ten better ideas for a film to be made now about witches. That's that was my quibble yeah. with the film, basically. So, so that that's Roald Dahl's The Witches remade. We don't recommend it. We very rarely recommend the remake. There are some ones that have held up. Um, but the remake restoration, this is quite interesting. Now, I don't know how much you know about this, mate, because this is really fucking old dates, right? Have you seen a film called The Oscar? You probably haven't. You can't even get it anywhere. I couldn't find a link to it, not even on YouTube. So you, you've probably never seen it. No, um, I have not. So there was a book that I found in a second-hand bookshop years and years and years ago called The Oscar by a guy called Richard Sale. And every other book he wrote is of no consequence. This book was a bit of a minor hit when it came out. And it tells the story of an actor who's something of a scumbag and no one likes, wakes up one morning to find out he's been nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actor for his most recent film. And he embarks on a ruthless and underhand campaign to, to win the award, get everyone to vote for him, and hopefully revitalise his flagging career. And the story follows his vicious exploits while also looking back on him and the trail of harm and grudges that litter his past, right? And takes you into the, like, the politics of Hollywood and Academy Awards, right? It's not a very well-written book. It's not a literary classic, but it's really page-turning, right? I lent the book to your granddad after I watched it, right? And I said, Dad, this is quite good. You might want to read it. And he read it in one sitting, right? In fact, he didn't sleep. It just kept him up. He couldn't sleep until he finished the book. It's one of those things where I know this is trash, but I want to know how it ends, right? And they made it into a film, which is total shite. It's, it was made in 1966. And 1966 is like, you know, that late 60s period where like, it's not classic Hollywood any, anymore. And it's not new Hollywood anymore. And a lot of the movies that come out of that time are just like nothing films. Do you know what I mean? They look dated because the Technicolor still looks old. You haven't got any of the new actors. You haven't got any of the new directors or storytellers out there yet. And a lot of these films that come out in that time are just kind of bleh, nothing. This is a really badly made, boring, shit version of like quite a compelling story. So it's crying out for a redo. But the thing about it is, is that what, what interested me is if you did a film about the Oscars now, there's so much more you could do about it. I mean, they... they, they Christopher Guest, who was in Spinal Tap and has done these other films like A, a, a Mighty Wind and stuff like that, he did For Your Consideration, which is about an Oscars campaign. But this idea of like a total, but it's much, it's much more quirky. It's kind of more, more, a bit more gentle. But this kind of scumbag in Hollywood campaigning for Oscars, I feel that's a story that you could that you could tell now, right? Yeah, totally. You'd probably annoy a lot of people in it as well. You'd annoy Harvey Weinstein, which would be great. Yeah, it's interesting because there have been kind of films that are about Hollywood and even the films that are quite scathing about Hollywood. A lot of like actors and filmmakers, they quite like being in those movies. They quite like being in movies about Hollywood. And not everyone likes these inside of Hollywood stories, but you have things like The Player, Barton Fink, Hell Caesar, Sunset Boulevard, even Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, stuff like that. Uh, uh, a lot of like Hollywood figures like being in those kind of movies. Like, do you remember when we watched Get Shorty? They got a bunch of actors to kind of be themselves in the movie or play Harvey Keitel playing John, you know, uh, you know, characters from the story at that film within a film at the end. The people like doing that kind of thing, but you could do stuff now. Harvey Weinstein's kind of shameless kind of Oscar campaigning, uh, you know, hatchet jobs on the on the other films, the other actors, kind of the campaigning. Here's an interesting um, nugget. I don't know if you knew this. You know when Daniel Day-Lewis was uh, nominated for playing My Left Foot, for playing a real-life yes. disabled character in My Left Foot? 
during the Oscar campaigning, during the period in which uh, Academy voters would be voting on who's going to win, um, who, either who should be nominated or who should win the Oscar, Harvey Weinstein managed to arrange for um, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis to appear before Congress in a, in a discussion about the treatment of disabled people and how they should be like better represented in society. That's the sort of thing that Weinstein used to do to win Oscars. It's really shameless, right? And I, I, just, I mean, I'm not know, being funny. Like, I don't agree with my left foot, but I also don't agree with Harvey Weinstein. So that's a bit of a conundrum for me there. <laughs> but it's it's really it's it's really interesting that like these sort of campaigns would like exist. That you know, and I think unless you like are interested, and you don't have to be, you can just watch the movies, and then you can say, oh, uh, you know. Uh, Steven Spielberg won an Oscar this year or didn't win an Oscar this year. You don't have to like be interested in the ins and outs, the the the, the, the seedy underbelly of, of Oscar campaigning. But if you lift the lid on that, I think you've got a really compelling story. You could update it to do some of the shit that Weinstein did. You can update like the Hollywood scumbag storyline for some of the stuff that's come out, Me Too and all that kind of thing. Um, there's obviously the Andrew Riseborough kind of viral campaign, which put noises out of joint this year. You've got Will Smith and Chris Rock outbursts at the, you know, uh, there's... It's such fertile ground for a new movie. I mean, I, I'm totally like like to see this, and you know, it's the sort of thing where maybe Leonardo DiCaprio could play like the faded star, or you know, Brad Pitt, or you know, one of these actors who's just gone the other side of forty and plays that kind of character. It just it definitely got um, it's definitely got uh, potential for like an, a, an updating. I think even if the original film had been quite good, I think this could deserves to be updated. I mean, would you watch a movie like this? Do you like Hollywood insider movies? So so, they have to be good. Otherwise, I'm not entirely, entirely fussed by it. But I do like the kind of see the underbelly of uh, Hollywood being exposed. Yeah, um, I'm, the the, the, en- a- the the engine of the story is quite strong. I mean, the reason that you keep watching is you think, is he going to pull it off? Is he going to win? Right? And you know, everyone hates him, and he has to go back and call in favors from people who fucking hate his guts. But he's got, you know, he's very good at wheedling people, so he's a really compelling character who manages to like convince people to vote for him. And you know, and, and, and sort of the, the longer the story goes on, the more you think, God, this, this fucking scumbag. You, you, you don't like him as a character, but you find yourself very compelled by his like ruthless like uh, single minded attempt to actually win this award. And you think, is he going to pull this off? Is he going to do it? And I don't suppose you're ever going to read the book and there's no point in trying to search out the film, so I might as well spoil the ending of this for you. It's got a really nice ending that they botched for the movie is that they they it cuts at the end to a report of what happened at the Oscars when the best actor's name was read out. And they said it was really nice to see the main character stand up um, uh, as, the, as the award's being announced see that such and such uh, a name has been called out and give a great standing ovation. It was very gracious of him to give a standing ovation to the other nominee who actually won on the night. And obviously what he did was he stood up ready to give his speech because he was so sure he was going to win. And then when he heard that someone else um, has won, he has to kind of decide what he's going to do, like standing up with, with all the world to see him. And it's a really kind of nice, ironic ending to this story. And you kind of go, yeah, fuck you, mate. Do you know what I mean? But you've watched. And they, the, the, the way they do this is like you know, Hollywood's fake. So you kind of, it's compelling. You love it. It's glamorous, but it's full of scumbags. you know what I mean? So it's a very compelling kind of story, I thought. I, I'd, I'd love to see them do this. And I hope somebody does.
That's all for this month's Double Real Features. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin McLeod. After Hours is available to rent or buy from the usual online platforms. Sadly, it's a lot more expensive to buy on physical media. You can read about Spielberg's Night Skies in online articles or in the book The Greatest Sci-Fi Movies Never Made by David Hughes. The script is also available to view online. Tune in next week for the big conversation where we're going to talk about the 2023 Academy Awards winners, losers and ceremony. We look forward to speaking to you then. Take care in the meantime.